What a great confession, Father, that we make to you through Christ as we approach your word. Lord, we love you. Sometimes we have to fight to love you in the midst of circumstances. And sometimes we may even feel our love wane. But Lord, we're we're thankful that we can love you because you first loved us and still. So Lord, as we come to your word, would you help us to see you and see Christ more clearly in a way that increases our love for you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing. We're going to read the scripture, the preaching passage today. It's, it's found in uh, your worship folder, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Please be seated. Prior... Preparation prevents pathetically poor performance. Those are the six P's. And perhaps you would think that I read those or learned those from a leadership book or a business book or something of the like, and maybe those are contained there, and sometimes there's seven, and sometimes the wording's a little different. But I learned them as six in a seventh grade boys' Sunday school class in a little church outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And they've stuck with me all of these years. Prior preparation prevents pathetically poor performance. Preparation, good preparation, is important. And we prepare for lots of things. Many of you prepared to come here this morning. You look great. Soon, students and teachers, you will be preparing for the first day of school again. We prepare for job interviews. We prepare for tests for vacations and road trips, for business decisions. I prepare for sermons. We lay out our weekly schedules in preparation for what we think is going to happen or what we'd like to happen. But what is it that takes just normal preparation and makes it good preparation or takes it from the realm of pathetically poor preparation? Well, proper preparation is built on excellent expectation. And this is the end of my awkward alliteration. (laughs) We prepare for many things, right? And those preparations are built on our expectations of what we expect to happen in any given event or circumstance. But what happens when something occurs that you don't expect? How do you prepare for the unexpected? 
these, however you answer those questions pertaining to those ideas are the same questions and same ideas that can be applied to our, Christ, our Christian life. What do you expect? What do you expect from God? What do you expect from the Word, from the Bible, when you read it on your own or when you come in a setting like this? What do you expect from the church, from your brothers and sisters in Christ? And in turn, what can they expect from you? What do you expect when you're treated in a hostile way by an unbelieving world? What do you expect in the middle of trials and persecution? Or do you even expect those things at all? That's what our text today deals with. And I believe that our expectations of our Christian life will be challenged by this passage. Because when we're faced with unmet expectations or we find ourselves in circumstances for which we're unprepared, when we are insulted and persecuted because of the name of Jesus, we're tempted towards shock, surprise, shame even, short-sightedness, maybe even faithlessness. Beloved church, as Peter calls us, God calls us to be prepared for such situations and such events, and he hasn't left us without a plan. He's given us a plan with a purpose, his purpose. And what is that purpose? Refinement. Refinement being the process of removing unwanted impurities. In our context, that means making us a little bit more like Jesus every day. We're to view trials and persecution through the lens of Scripture and through the reality of the cross. And therefore, when we suffer for the name of Jesus, we can trust that we are being refined by a trustworthy God who is always prepared, even when we're not. And that's what we're to expect, and that's how we are to prepare. And so we're going to see that in three ways this morning with regards to refinement. First, we want to expect refinement through trials. Expect refinement through trials. In this, we will see our perspective challenged. Number two, we're going to rejoice in refinement through trials. And we're going to be challenged by this, by trials, on our definitions of things like joy and worship and blessing. And number three, we want to trust in the midst of refinement through trials because trials challenge our faith. And so three words to remember, expect, rejoice, and trust. First, expect refinement through trials. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, Peter is speaking very clear, and he is reiterating much of what he's already said uh, in the previous three chapters of his letter. In fact, I would see our passage today much of a, as a summary passage of the entire uh, previous three chapters in 1 Peter. And in fact, you could see verse 19 as a summary statement of the entire uh, letter. And he starts out by telling us to not be surprised when a fiery trial comes on you. So what do you mean, don't be surprised, Peter? This isn't exactly what I expected. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Augustine used a great illustration, and I want to follow up with that. He talked about how John Stott used to refer to um, our Christian life in two volumes. The first volume being uh, from when you were born to the moment you accepted Christ, 
And that moment when you accepted Christ and followed him, made him the savior of your life and decided to follow him, volume two begins. And like Pastor Augustine said last week, some of you may find yourself here this morning still uh, in volume one. And so I would encourage you to listen this morning and ask God to move in a way that would allow you to repent of your sins, have faith in Christ, and move on to volume two. But those of you who are in Christ, who are Christians, I want you to think back about when volume two began for you. When you first put your faith in Christ. Maybe that was a long time ago. Maybe it was when you were a child, or maybe it was very recently. Maybe it was just through a process, or maybe it was a very dramatic conversion. Regardless of the circumstances of you coming to faith, I wonder what you expected from your Christian life in that moment. What did you expect your Christian life would be like? Well, regardless of how you answer that question, God doesn't simply save you and escorts you right into eternity, right up to the gates of heaven. God saves you and then uses the rest of your life, whether those expectations have been met or not, likely some of both, He uses the rest of your life to refine you, to refine me, to refine our church, to accomplish his purposes in us and through us. He grows us and shapes us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. As we pick up our Roman series in just a few weeks in chapter 8, we're going to get to Romans 8, 28 and 29, where we find out that God works all things together for good. And what is that good? That we are shaped into the likeness of Christ. And that's what's meant by refinement through a fiery trial. And Peter is exhorting us not to be surprised at that. And certainly not even be surprised when it's difficult. This language of a fiery trial is nothing new to Scripture. And in fact, it's not even new to the letter of 1 Peter. If you look in your worship folder, the, um, the text that we read responsively is from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1.7 says that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But when you get to this part of the letter and find out that that wasn't just a simple effective metaphor for our faith, you find out that this is actually going to happen to us, to you, because it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. When you, see, when you claim the name of Jesus and you follow him, and when God claims you as his own, number one, you're called beloved, which Peter refers to us here. And th- that speaks volumes in and of itself. But two, a refining trial will come on you. But three, there is purpose in that trial, and that purpose is to test you for the purpose of testing. And furthermore, it's not strange. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah spoke of this in Zechariah 13.9. He said, speaking of Israel, of those that would be preserved in the midst of judgment, the Lord said through him, and I will put them into the fire, and I will refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. And that is through testing, through refinement. 
So when the Lord refines us through this testing, through this fiery trial, you can be confident, and I can be confident, we can be confident, that you are his, that you are his beloved. And in that process, you will also find out that he is yours. You see, this testing is for our good, and yet we spend most of our lives trying to avoid it. And that's understandable to a certain extent because who among us likes to suffer? No one. And no one is calling for a masochistic view of Christianity where we seek out this fiery trial. Yet Peter tells us it's not strange and that we shouldn't be shocked and even more, we shouldn't run from it. Yet refinement in our culture, and we'll get to more of this in just a moment, can take all sorts of different shapes and forms. And it has taken many shapes and forms throughout the history of Christianity, throughout the New Testament. And and that should speak to us to realize that we are not, you are not, the first people to go through refinement and through trials. We are not the first people to have read this passage in 1 Peter. In fact, God has been refining his people throughout history. And And these types of challenges provide perspective for us. They help us to prepare, and they influence our expectations. Peter tells us that we should expect this type of refinement and be resolved through it, as though through fire. So, number one, expect. Number two, rejoice in refinement through trials. Now, to be honest, that can sound a little strange to our ears, right? But again, this echoes uh, earlier what Peter has written in chapter 1, again in your worship folder, from what we read responsively. In 1 verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter reiterates this here in our passage today and reminds his readers of this call to rejoice in the midst of trials. But in this case, he gives us a very distinct qualifier as to what necessitates this kind of rejoicing. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, when Peter told us not to be surprised, our, expecta- our expectations and perspective is challenged. But here he calls us to rejoice in the midst of refinement, and we find our definition of joy and worship challenged. Most of us, if we're honest, uh, would say that joy is conditional in many respects. Now, of course, that depends on how you would refine, define joy. If you've seen Pixar's latest movie, Inside Out, you'll know that the main character is named Joy, and she represents the emotion joy inside the brain of an 11-year-old. And so you see how joy just wants to dominate all circumstances and squash out any uh, other emotions, thinking that that's what's good. And I found that movie to be profound in in some ways, but through a a biblical lens, Pixar's definition of joy reads more like the up-and-down definition of happiness that our culture would tell us is true. And we all know that that is conditional. But the kind of joy that Peter describes here is only conditioned on one thing, the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection and return of Christ. 
Grounding our definition and the condition for our joy on the cross, on the gospel, on the empty tomb is part of our refinement. God is refining us, moving us away from a cultural definition of joy and happiness to the rock-solid foundation of the gospel. And this allows us to be equipped to share in the fiery trial, the sufferings of Christ. And this statement, insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ, sets apart this type of suffering from all other types of suffering that is common to all people. That's not to minimize suffering of others, but it's to specify the suffering for Christians. It's one of the major themes of 1 Peter and, in fact, of all of the New Testament. It was a preaching point for Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And that's retold in Luke 6.22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. But Jesus says, rejoice in that day and in fact leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So why should we rejoice in the midst of persecution and refinement? Well, first, we know that we're tested. We know from this passage and others that God is doing it and he's in control of it. It means that there is a limit to it. There will be an end to it and there's a purpose behind it. And that's reason enough to rejoice. But second, when we suffer for the name of Jesus, it further solidifies and unifies us and identifies us with him. We have assurance We have evidence that we belong to him. And that enables us to rejoice and be glad and hopeful for the day that he will be revealed in all of his glory. But this idea of a deep-seated joy that is rooted essentially in the gospel challenges us. Because it challenges us both, both personally but also corporately in how we come to worship on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights. How we approach a service of worship on a week-in, week-out basis. Because when my joy is derived and rooted in the the foundation of the gospel, what I'm able to return to God in worship, after all, worship is our response to God for what he's done in and through us, what I'm able to return to God through my voice, through my singing, through my prayers, through my attention, through my affection, through my service to others, when we're rooted in the gospel, those things are informed in a way that, that minimizes preference and exalts substance and the essence of the gospel. Pastor Bullock talks about this all the time. It's essence and substance over form. You see, persecution can rob us of many, many things. You talk to brothers and sisters around the world and you know that church buildings are burned down. They're kicked out of house churches. Instruments are destroyed. All of the things that we may see that helps to enable us and certainly helps us to worship in ways, in biblical ways. But what happens when persecution robs us of structure and form? Persecution can rob you of lots and lots of things, many things. But it cannot rob you of your relationship with the Lord through Christ. It cannot rob you of the truth of the gospel. And thus it cannot rob you of your joy. 
And we must have our definition of worship and joy grounded there. God, help us when we prioritize form over essence because there are eschatological and eternal principles, according to this passage, at stake, on the line, when we compromise in that way. And that is challenging to us, no matter where your preferences lie. Verse 14 says that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so not only are we challenged to rejoice and have our definition of joy kind of redefined or grounded in the gospel, we're also challenged to have our definition of blessing in the gospel, aren't we? We are in danger when we reduce our idea of blessing to only being the absence of persecution and insult and replace it with the presence of comfort and ease. This is a massive temptation for us, particularly in our Western culture. We equate blessing as ease and comfort, material wealth or possessions or even just uh, those types of provisions. But Peter is crystal clear that blessing is due to the presence of the spirit of glory and of God, the favor of God. Now, could that be manifest in influence and material blessing? Sure, it could and is in some cases. But when those things, those outward things are replaced with insult, And instead of material gain, material loss for the name of Jesus, that is not a sign of God's absence, as we might assume. But Peter would say that this is a sign of God's abiding presence as you share in the sufferings of Christ and wait for his return, for his glory to be revealed. That's why our view of joy must be, and blessing must be deeper than our conditions, than our preferences. Our joy, which, which pours out in the form of worship, must be concretely founded on the essence of the gospel and the person and work of Christ alone, rather than the form of our expression. And this challenges us, this challenges me, but this refines us, this refines us. When our joy is not based on inter- external circumstances, but an eternal reality, we are able to rejoice in the midst of refinement through trials because we know true blessing. And so expect, rejoice, and finally trust. Trust in the midst of refinement. Refinement, as I said before, takes on many forms in our current culture, doesn't it? Both locally and globally. But one form it does not take, however, is found in verse 15. This overall passage is is famously misapplied when we use it to justify any means of action to retaliate against persecution. We, th- we say things like, oh, I must be really blessed because I, I was really persecuted today. And, and that might be true in some circumstances unless your suffering is brought on by foolishness or sinful living. In just a moment, we're going to see where true trust should reside in the midst of persecution. But when we suffer due to our own foolishness and our own sinfulness, what, might, uh, what the Lord might be revealing to us is that we are guilty of trusting in ourselves rather than the Lord, because not all who suffer are blessed. I've been amazed at how God has been using this sermon series throughout First Peter. It seems like every week there's a new headline 
And then there's a sermon passage, a preaching passage that just follows that up. And it's been a great blessing and a great challenge to me. I hope it has been to you. And this week is no different. I'm sure you've heard about the actions of Planned Parenthood and perhaps seen some of the videos that are coming out about the harvesting of the organs of the unborn. And certainly that's a call for us to renew our stance, to to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. God values all of life. And while this passage doesn't speak so much to the evils of those actions and those actions in our culture, it speaks to how we should respond. The message of life is offensive to many. And the greater message of the gospel at one point is offensive to all of us. And so what I mean by that is that we as a church, you as a Christian, should let the gospel be your only offense. It's offensive all by itself. It tells us that we are sinners and that we are sunk without Christ, left to ourselves. And though you may not be able to remember what uh, it was like when the gospel was offensive to your ears, know that as a rebel against a holy God, the gospel is offensive. And only by the grace of God does it turn from bitterness to sweetness, to the refreshing life-giving source of living water. And so as we seek to love and live in the light of a and live in light of a hostile culture. Let our only offense be that of the truth of the gospel. That we not suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. I'm afraid, beloved, that there are many times when we are guilty of heaping coals on our own head because of our actions. Perhaps you're not guilty of murder. Well done. But as Jesus said, you may be guilty of murder in that you have hated others in your heart. You may be guilty of meddling, of stirring up trouble in places where you don't belong, perhaps through workplace conversations. You know, you can just bait someone into a conversation that you know, ah, I've got this right hook that, yeah. Maybe it's the way you speak to family members that falls in one of these categories. Maybe it's the way you conduct yourself on social media. Which, by the way, comment sections on social media is where all compassion Logic, reason, they just go to die. So don't even spend time there. Love people. But all of that, we, we, we could be guilty of, of speaking in a way that, that sounds more like uh, the rhetoric that's so prevalent in our culture on cable news stations, on the radio, rather than speaking with the love of Christ. But Paul tells us to be gentle in Galatians 6. And to be wise and well thought of by outsiders, always full of grace in Colossians 4. So church, as we seek to trust God in the midst of our refinement, let us be careful that we are not trusting in our own ways, in our own tactics, in our own wisdom. Let us seek his ways and not our own. Let us preach his message 
in a tone that exhibits the same compassion that Jesus showed for those who he saw as sheep without a shepherd. That doesn't mean that we compromise on truth. God save us from that as well. But it does mean that we don't heap on ourselves additional uh, suffering and needless suffering because of our own sinful and foolish actions. So remember that we are called to share in Christ's sufferings and not the sufferings of our own reproach for which Christ has already suffered. Let's honor him in the way that we seek to proclaim the message of the gospel to our world and how we respond. So if we don't trust in ourselves, and yet we want to trust in the midst of refinement, where do we trust? Expect, rejoice, and trust. Where do we place our trust? Who will you trust? If you are suffering as a Christian, under the banner of the gospel of God, when we trust, entrust ourselves, or when we do trust ourselves, we might find ourselves being ashamed, but when we are entrusting ourselves to Christ, Peter tells us that we should glorify God instead. Why? Because it is he who uses the suffering and insult to refine us and bring glory to himself to accomplish his, to accomplish his purpose. Maybe it's the salvation of that coworker through the way that you show love to them and glorify God. Maybe it is the salvation of that family member or neighbor. In the same way that Jesus, that he used Jesus' sufferings to accomplish his purposes, the salvation of you, of us, of the church. And when that suffering looks and feels like judgment, we must trust all the more. Peter tells us that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Uh, These ideas of judgment and the house of God are, again, echoes of previous statements from this letter, from this uh, word from Peter. In chapter 1, verse 17, God is referred to as a judge. And Peter tells us in 2.23 that Jesus himself put his trust in God as a faithful and just judge, even in the midst of his own suffering. And earlier in this same chapter, the gospel was pre- as the gospel was preached, it served as a dividing line of judgment. And so now to see God as judge, even in his own household, among his people, we know from chapter 2 that through that we are being built up into a spiritual household on which we are built on, onto Christ, our cornerstone. And so this should not come as a surprise to us. This type of judgment here is not one necessarily of condemnation, but as I've said, of one of refinement. Much like we read about in Jesus' parable of the uh, wheat and the tares. So within the household of God, judgment and testing comes for the purpose of refinement, even if it means that those who are saved are scarcely so. Now that may sound frightening to you, being scarcely saved, but know that there is still salvation in that. But maybe it should be frightening to remind us that we are being tested and the genuineness of our faith is being tested. But also be reminded that God is a just judge. And if you are in Christ, you have an advocate to the Father in Christ. And therefore, that judgment through testing should not frighten you. Rather, it should cause you to stand even more firmly on the truth of the gospel, the cornerstone of your faith on Christ himself. Because refinement challenges our expectations and, our, and our, uh, our worship, our definitions of blessing and all of those things, but it also challenges our faith. Now, if you're outside of the household of God, Peter asks you a very important question here. If you are one who has not put your faith in Christ, what will become of you? 
what will become of you. For the person who is here that is far from God, the call then is to believe the gospel, to turn, as many have, from your sins and trust in Christ. Today is the day of your salvation. Believe. But for those inside the household of God, this is an urgent call to proclaim the gospel all the more. What will become of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? To proclaim the gospel more in the face of persecution is counterintuitive to everything that rises up within us in the face of persecution. But it's what is reiterated here in our final verse in verse 19 that causes us to to want to proclaim it all the more. It's because of our trust in a faithful creator. If you are trusting God with the eternal destination of your soul and you've entrusted yourself to his faithfulness to bring about his will, even in the face of persecution, your call is to continue to do good, to continue to proclaim the gospel. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Someone once said, ships are safe when they're in the harbor. And we know that we are geared to find safety. And yet we even idolize safety sometimes. But that's not what ships were built for. And there are times in our lives when we feel safer than others, but the only true safety we have is in the hands of a faithful creator and eternal safety. And so the call for us this morning, college church, friends, beloved, is to get out on the open seas and see what you were made for, to see what you were made of, to be tested, to see what you are called to and equipped for by the Holy Spirit, to see what this proclaiming of the gospel will actually accomplish in our culture. If your soul is guarded and entrusted to this faithful creator, this just judge, and you are blessed with his presence, then you are free from fear and self-preservation. You are free to do good to others in the name of Christ. You are free to be good to those around you for the salvation of souls and for the glory of God. So we should have right expectations that these things should not surprise us, but that should lead us to right rejoicing in the midst of trials because we're, we're founded on the trust and truth of the gospel. And we continue to do good as we proclaim that message. May it be so of us. We come now to the time where we gather around the communion table. We come to this table to follow Jesus' command to remember the grace that has been given to us on the cross, the grace that empowers our trusting, our rejoicing, and our expectations. We're reminded to view our lives through the lens of the cross These are signs and symbols of trust that you and I have been bought with a great price. So we don't approach this table lightly or out of rote tradition. We do this out of reverence and obedience, out of a love for Christ. So if you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ, if you're still on volume one and you're wrestling with that, as the elements come by, we ask that you would just let them pass you by 
not out of embarrassment or shame, but out of honesty. And we welcome your honesty as you wrestle with God and he wrestles with you. We ask that you would consider Christ. But if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a true Christian, you are welcomed at this table. And we invite you to remember with us the sacrifice that Jesus made for us so that even in the midst of suffering and persecution, we might be able to be renewed in our trust of our faithful creator through Christ. But we don't do this lightly. Rather, we come humbly and aware of our own sins. So hear these words from 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is not so much a prohibition, but an invitation to repent of your sins anew and be reminded of the grace that you have as we commune together. And so as we prepare the table, we're going to do so in silence, and we want this silence to be a time of reflection for you. So as we prepare the table, please bow and reflect.